A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by Bert Shevelov and Larry Gelbart, opened at the Alvin Theater, now the Neil Simon, May 8th, 1962. Inspired by the farces of the ancient Roman playwright Plotus, the musical tells the body story of a slave named Pseudolus and his attempts to win his freedom by helping his young master woo the girl next door. Originally envisioned to star Broadway and film comic Phil Silvers, who got his start in burlesque, the plot exploits many of the classic elements of farce, including puns, slamming doors, mistaken identity, characters in disguise, and satirical comments on social class. Following a storied rehearsal and tryout period in which a legendary opening number was added, changing the fortunes of the production, the show was a critical and audience success on opening night and has enjoyed two Broadway revivals, a film adaptation, and a long life in regional and amateur renditions since opening. With us today is New York-based dramaturg and writer Annika Chapin. She is currently the artistic associate and resident dramaturg at Goodspeed Musicals, where she scouts and develops new productions. Formerly the literary manager at Two River Theater, she was also the executive producer of Encore's Unscripted, a discussion series about topics in theater that was a collaboration between WNYC and City Center Encores. With Michael Fling, she is the creator and host of In the Spotlight, a podcast that dives into musicals, their histories, stories, and what makes them work or not. <laughs> Multi-award winning actor Ross Lehman, whose work on stage nationally includes appearances in the Broadway productions, The Tempest, Epic Proportions, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and as Hysterium in the second Broadway revival of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, opposite Nathan Lane, a role that he also played at Chicago's Goodman Theater in 1989. And music director and conductor Linda Madonia, who works both on U.S. and London stages and whose Sondheim production credits include West Side Story, Company, A Little Night Music, Sweeney Todd, three productions of Into the Woods, and two productions of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Welcome to the round table, everybody. I am so excited about this show. It is one of my all-time favorites. I like to kind of start the discussions and get us all on the same footing. Where did it come into our lives? Where did we first encounter a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. For me, strangely, it was a weird journey of love of, of, of sort of steps. It started with the album, but not the Broadway cast album. It was this the, the soundtrack album. And that rendition of Comedy Tonight was used as the intro to um, the, the, the after the Saturday afternoon movie here in Chicago, I think on channel nine, they played that version of comedy tonight. And then they would show an Abbott and Costello movie or something like that. And from there, then I discovered, I wanted to know what is this play and then read it and directed it in high school and, uh, just fell in love with it. And, uh, it's, it is, uh, always been a favorite, uh, and, uh, directed it a couple of times, acted in it, and God, I, it's, it's like pizza. You know, it's one of those shows that whether it's a professional production or an amateur production, you can hardly screw it up. How about for you three? Where did you first come upon Forum? Uh, somebody, I'll go first. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was uh, just telling Michael, I, I, when I was in high school, I played Hero. 
and uh, and then. And then, uh, and yeah, I, I played Hysterium in a Goodman production um, in 1989. And then I directed it for a small theater company. Um, and then I, 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 I did, I replaced Mark Lynn Baker in the uh, Broadway revival with Nathan Lane about a year into their run. And for some strange reason, um, Mark Lynn Baker had it in his contract that he would do a year beginning with the first day of rehearsal. Everybody else, everybody else's contract was from the first public performance. So he left the show three months before Nathan Lane did. Um, so I got to do it with Nathan Lane and then his replacement, which was Whoopi Goldberg, and then her replacement, which was David Allen Greer, and then finally with Bob, Amaral, who um, uh, had been Nathan Lane's understudy, I think the whole time. Um, and later he, I think he like did the national tour of the producers and, you know, um, so it was great. I got to do it with four, uh, four actors uh, over the course of a year. And it was um, probably one of the more meaningful uh, odd, odd to say, because it was a, it's a silly farce but it was one of the more meaningful events in my theatrical life uh, because I thought there was no way in hell I was gonna get the job. And then I got the job and I was so naive at the time. Like I didn't understand that at the audition, all the producers would be there at the callback. <laughs> and I didn't know that Nathan Lane was gonna read with me. Uh, I knew, I think that Whoopi Goldberg, if I got the job, I'd eventually be doing it with Whoopi Goldberg, but I didn't understand that I would be rehearsing with her during the day and doing the show with Nathan Lane at night. Um, I didn't understand that I was going to meet Stephen Sondheim <laughs> or uh, uh, Rob Marshall, who is the choreographer. Uh, and <laughs> You know, I was still sort of pretty, I'd already done one Broadway show, but I was still, I was 40, but I was kind of a kid. Um, so it was a very heady time and full of challenges. And Nathan Lane was a very demanding leading man. I ended up really admiring him and, and liking him a great deal. Um, we weren't friends, but he was a very instructive colleague um, taught me a lot about doing farce, um, a lot about discipline, although I was already a pretty disciplined actor, but um, uh, I mean, I have the, all, a lot of stories. I'll, I'll get to them later if you want. Um, but the principal thing that I came away with was because Whoopi, when Whoopi Goldberg came into the, to the show, um, she would throw parties and I got invited to these parties. And one time I went up the elevator, you know, she had one of those places in Manhattan where it's an entire floor of a building. And you go up the elevator and the doors open and you're in her foyer. And the doors open, I went to, she invited me to this party. I, I went to the address, I got in the elevator, I went up all by myself and the doors open. And of course I'm ridiculously early. And sitting on the couch is Stephen Sondheim. And I'd only met him once and sort of briefly, he came to a, a Whoopi's put-in rehearsal. Um, and uh, I didn't know he was there, but they said, he's in the back of the theater. You wanna go meet him? And I went, yeah, sure. <laughs> but like, you know, I had just 
oh, it was just terrifying. But I went up and in the back of the theater and I, I, he shook my hand and he said, um, uh, okay, I like the way you did calm. Anyway, calm was the big number for hysteria. And uh, he was just saying it to get it over with. And then he launched into some stories about the making of Forum and other plays. And so that, so when I went up in the elevator and the doors opened and there he is, I realized, oh, now I've got him by himself. So I just went in, I sat down on the couch next to him and I, I would say grilled him, but you know, he didn't really need much prompting. He loved to tell stories and he didn't necessarily paint himself in a flattering light. Like one of the things I remember him saying was that if he had it to do over, he wouldn't have written the show the same way. That he didn't appreciate at the time how funny the script was. Mm -hmm. Although I think Larry Gelbert uh, appreciated it, but he didn't. Yeah. And he tried to write funny songs. And he thought if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't try to be funny in the songs. I'd let the script be funny and let the action be funny. Um, I don't necessarily agree with him. I think he wrote some really funny songs for that show mm -hmm. um, and kind of led the way for other kind, other songs like um, A Little Priest, you know, that kind of like almost vaudevillian patter, funny punchline puns, great rhymes, all that stuff. Um, I think what he was saying was the book's better than my, my stuff. Wow, we'll um, talk through that. Annika and Linda, when, when did you first uh, encounter the show? Well, I basically, I grew up loving Sondheim and just going through systematically, you know, one show at a time, pretty much just listening to it on my way to school, on my way home from school, I was like that kid. Um, but uh, Forum, I think I saw the Nathan Lane revival was the first interaction I had with it. And I just thought it was hilarious. And ever since I've um, been a big fan of it. And then when I was at Two River, I was lucky enough to work on the production that we did there, um, which had been previously at Williamstown, directed by Jessica Stone and starring Chris Fitzgerald. So um, in working on it, I just grew to love it even more. Um, and that's kind of where I stand. We didn't do it in my high school. I went to an all girls school, but the strange thing is that because I was always tall and broad shouldered and had a low voice, my specialty was like really horrible misogynist men. So I actually have like a soft spot for Miles Gloriosis because I know that that's the part I would have played. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that, that's my part. <laughs> that's a riot. How about you, Linda? Um, I feel like I didn't come uh to form until sort of later. Like I had done other Sondheim before form. In fact, I don't, I don't really, I don't feel like I knew much about the show at all, but I think as a music director, it's not really a first choice project because of the way the music is written. It's not a Sweeney Todd or an Into the Woods that's so musically challenging. The challenge in form is totally different, which is as a, as a musician is trying to, um, trying to support the comedy in the play. The music is so, not secondary, but it, it takes a different position in form than in other Sondheim shows. Um, so I feel like I did it the first time, I think with you, Michael, and you know, it, it grows on you and you can't shake it. And the opportunity to then get to do it a second time really sort of cemented it as, 
kind of one of my all-time favorites but as a music director it's 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 kind of a quirky little show like once you get past comedy tonight you're sort of in a play with music and trying to figure out how to navigate that you know Robbie, you, you bring up, I mean, in terms of his stories or at that point in his life talking about this show, um, it is an interesting gestation, uh, the birth of this particular piece and where it fell in his journey, um, being that he started writing it after West Side Story and was really pushing to be, I want to write music and lyrics right, right after West Side Story and then got... Um, off track by when Gypsy, you know, made its presence known. But, um, you know, the, the, the birth story of this with him, you know, putting it together and out of town and, and uh, uh, it not doing well is something that, uh, did he mention anything in any of those stories or? or uh... Well, he did talk a little bit about the opening originally being something in the air, mm -hmm. um, which is a lovely little sprightly, tune but um you know he said it had n really nothing to do with the show itself it didn't prepare the audience in any way for what was to come love is in the air quite clearly people everywhere act queerly some are hasty some are halt and some are simply some are so love is going around anyone exposed i can catch it keep your window closed saying he said some interesting things about Jerome Robbins but I think he said Jerome Robbins in that case was also instrumental as he was with Fiddler on the Roof in finding the perfect opening for the show that really uh, got the audience ready for what they were about to see and then in our production Jerry Zachs started with um, the tragedy which you know the curtain went up and there was Mary Testa with a couple of dead babies. <laughs> <laughs> Are we evil or what? Uh, but yeah, it was like a scene from Medea. And, um, and then he goes, no, 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 we're not gonna do that. And then the curtain comes down and then the curtain comes back up and it's a completely new set. And they did it in a matter of seconds. And um, it just further, it just got the audience right there with it.
appreciate that as an actor at the time. You know, as an actor, you think it's all on you, mm-hmm. but he set us all up so brilliantly, you mm-hmm. know, both Sondheim and Jerry Zachs that, you know, we didn't have that much to worry about uh, just getting started. Um, but he did talk a little bit about that. And um, I, this is just a side story, but I, I was just remembering it. I asked him at one point if he'd ever worked with anybody that he truly felt was a genius. Good question. <laughs> I know, but it's a terrible question to ask of a genius. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I lucked out because I didn't mean you're not a genius. What I was getting at was, do you know anybody that's up to your, you know, intellectual ability? And he said the only one he'd ever worked with was Jerome Robbins. Mm-hmm. That, that Jerome Robbins, it seemed to flow out of him that there was no editor necessary. There was no reworking necessary at times. Mm-hmm. He, would, he would create a piece full blown mm-hmm. um, and seemingly off the top of his head, who knows? But, and, but I remember him saying the rest of us poor schnooks have to work for a living. Um, and, but then he went on to this other, st- I'm sorry, I'm going on, I'm going on, but he went on to this other story about writing Sweeney Todd and how that flowed out of him unlike any other show he'd ever written. Mm-hmm. And he was just coming out with it and coming out with it. In the middle of his process, he asked his um, mentor and sort of uh, uh, stepmother, um, Dorothy Hammerstein, um, why is this so easy? Of all show, all the shows, why is this so easy? And her response was, because you are Sweeney Todd. <laughs> No, that's not nice at all. <laughs> well, he said that this was <laughs> later on when, when, when uh, in interviews that this was the most difficult score that he wrote. Um, but you know, uh, Annika, you know, as a dramaturg, when you look at a piece like this, what's the first thing that that kind of hits you when you look at the at, at this mousetrap of a play and music? Sure. I mean, I think this is such a really good example of um, something that I say a lot to to writers or in general, which is that, you know, a show has to know what it is and be it. And I think when I hear that story of the opening number and, and you know, going from Love is in the Air, which is so kind of whimsical and sweet to the prologue, which I love, or the uh, invocation to the audience, um, which I also love, but is different, you know, to to land on comedy tonight is the perfect example of why this show would not work and then click into place. Because I think what, what's so brilliant about this show is that even though it's, it's in many ways unique among musicals because it's sort of not a conventional book musical because the songs can be removed because you have these sort of like the way that it uses farce and it uses these sort of Roman theatrical tropes is really interesting. You know, in some ways it stands kind of alone, but on the other hand, all of these weird pieces. And I think Sondheim's talked about that too, about how um, James Goldman said that the, the score doesn't match the script at all. Um, and he was like, he's right, but we have to keep going. Um, it it all just blends together to make this brilliant thing. And I, I think that it, as much as it has these different pieces, it, it feels very much of one tone. Love is in the air. Quite clearly. People. 
people. I wrote a rather charming number called Love is in the Air, but it's sweet. It's a soft shoe piece. And what it does is not tell the audience what kind of evening they're in for. They think they're in for high-button shoes, instead of which they're in for, you know, low comedy of a most elegant sort, but low comedy. We really needed a number that said, virtually, comedy tonight. We're going to knock you out every way we can to make you laugh. Something that's body, something that's body, something for everybody. Comedy tonight. Stephen Sondheim wrote a song. Larry Gelbart had to cut a joke. This joke. Was one a good year? We cut it because it's an anachronism. I mean, we, we try to be very pure. The people 200 years before the birth of Christ didn't know there was going to be a year one. We gave it to the authors of the screenplay. We let them do it, and they did it. And Nathan fell in love with the joke, so... It's back? It's, it's back for the first time on Broadway. <laughs> was one a good year? And it, it's funny, I was thinking about it today, and I was thinking, you know, it's the smartest dumb musical I've ever encountered. And I think that's kind of the, the, the secret to it. It's both the lowest, most ridiculous, silly, absurd uh, piece. And you know, some of those jokes are so funny because they're so like cheating and cheap. You know, the thing about like, wouldn't you know, there's a sweating mayor down the street, you know, <laughs> like just these little like, the grave robber owes me a favor. There's so many things that are just like, just, you know, these little throwaway things. And at the same time, there's this like, wordplay that's like you know sandimi and like a jeweler putting in all these brilliant pieces and i was reading something that said you know it's it's a play that actually it as a piece it it makes you feel smart it never talks down to the audience it doesn't expect you to know anything that you're not given by the piece and it actually sort of like wraps you in its comedy in such a warm and wonderful way been searching for a child. Yes. Two child. Yes, yes. Yes. Ah, a fine big boy. Yes. And a strange little boy. So it's a, it's kind of a delight and a frustration as a dramaturg to look at it because you're like all of these things are so brilliantly fitting together, but you know. When you, when you hear about how it wasn't working when it wasn't working, I can absolutely see this being the kind of piece where you're like, oh, what are we doing? This is gonna be a horrible disaster. Because of course, comedy is hard when you're putting it together anyway, because you don't, you know, the difference between something that's the funniest joke in the world and something that's just a, a dead, horrible feeling every night is like this big, you know? It's, it just, it's one of those things where it's like, man, it, it, is, a, it is a puzzle box for sure, but, they got it so right. And they put all those pieces in just the right way um, in a way that's really kind of beautiful to look at. It's, I know Sondheim has talked about how it's like, the book is just uh, brilliantly structured. And I think he's very, very right. Although I also disagree that he should have written more, uh, he shouldn't have written comedy songs. I think, I think the score for this is a brilliant fit for the book. I think it does exactly what it needs to do. It gives you just enough of reality, but not too much, because I think that would be a mistake actually. Um, you know, and it doesn't compete with the comedy of the book. I just, I, I disagree, Sondheim. You did a great job, <laughs> don't fix it. <laughs> and it's so interesting that in its first incarnation, you know, how sad for him, he got no love, no love, no, love. Papers, no Tony nomination for book or lyrics. And, and maybe it was a show that just musically was a bit ahead of its time. That I yeah. think that when they did the first revival with Bill Silvers in 72, only then, and once they figured out who this Stephen Sondheim guy was, because Company had already appeared and Follies had come, 
that now we oh we get what this is how yeah. this works you know well i also wonder if his own opinion of himself was colored by that initial uh lack of enthusiasm on on mm -hmm. everyone's part because i mean no matter no matter how how uh jaded one becomes you're still subject to all kinds of the slings and arrows and mm -hmm. and uh I wonder if that's the case, if he just never had confidence in it because of the reaction. Right. Well, and he talks a lot about the difference between songs that are funny and songs that are charming. Mm -hmm. And even within the show, that songs like uh, Impossible are funny, but songs like Pretty Little Picture are charming and that he, want, he should have written more funny. He was trying to show off. And, and go, here's my whole bag of tricks in 1962. You don't know me, but I, I, I don't just write boom chick, boom chick, boom chick. I write brilliant, you know. Linda, did you find that, that musically, that, that idea that the, the, the score matches or doesn't match the show itself? Um, I, don't, I don't think it matches, but to me, it's, it, that's why it matches. Does that make sense? I don't it almost feels like the score was secondary to this brilliant comedic script from a musical perspective, because you have to take each moment and kind of, you know, strategize how to play it musically and how does it fit into this scene and how does it work and how does it move this character, this character's sort of picture along. And um, yeah, I don't, I think it, I think the end result is that it fits perfectly, but I can definitely see all the bumps in the road getting there because musically there are still, you know, just like songs have been pulled in and out of it over the decades, there are, have, are definitely still occasional musical bumps where you're like, ooh, this doesn't quite work. Maybe we need to pull this verse out or maybe this tempo needs to shift or, you know what I mean? I think it was definitely not... Um, I think it was, it's one of those pieces that has constant, uh, the constant ability to change to its production a bit. You know, there's a little bit of movement in there. You, I think, um, and that comes from the comedy in it. You know, as comedy changes, the music has to kind of shift with it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I love, you know, the opening just <laughs> because that song, because comedy tonight, you know, anyone who doesn't, people who don't know Sondheim know the song Comedy Tonight. They don't know that it's connected to him. They don't know that it's him, whatever. But it's such a brilliant song. But like from a musical perspective, it's like the simplest little ditty. It's it's like a song you would write in a composition class. <laughs> sure, at that point, he was frustrated and he was trying to give everybody what they wanted in terms of an introductory song. And he went, fine, here you go. This is it. It's, it's simple and it's going to get the job done boom, it turns out to be like the most recognizable song in the show. And sometimes that's how music works. That's how composition works. You, you know, somebody gives you a little idea and it sparks the simplest yet most brilliant moment. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone.
say as a performer uh doing on calm was uh the least enjoyable moment <laughs> and it was my big solo and um i just kept thinking this should be funnier this should be funnier what do i have to do i was actually happier with my version at the goodman than i was um because i was able to play with it more because i could get away with it because the authors were not in the room mm -hmm. um and uh, and also in the Broadway version, I was replacing, so I had to keep most of the staging. But having said all that, it was probably my most frustrating moment um, in that show. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why it didn't quite, you know, you couldn't quite get there. Whereas doing the reprise of I'm Lovely was comedy gold because we were making fun of the song. Mm -hmm. um, no. Not making fun of the song, but uh, you know what you know what I mean. It, we we added a added a layer of farce to that song.
Kind of a mystery ultimately though too isn't it it's sort of a it's a it's a head scratcher <laughs> it's funny that you say that though because one of the things that i think is tricky about this show is that i i often find that the role of pseudolus and the role of hysterium has a little too much overlap for a farcical piece it's it, you often find criticism of the person who's playing pseudolus is that they're they're too hysterical because there's a lot of Mm -hmm. You know, that that part is so spinning around and then obviously hysterium, that's his whole shtick. So I wonder if, if, I mean, God, to even suggest this, but like if there were, um, if they were to re-examine it now, I wonder how those two parts might be differentiated a little bit more. And I wonder if that is part of that, that, that I'm calm doesn't quite feel like it's actually like, hysterium doesn't quite feel like he has totally enough meat yet right um and I'll, you know i almost didn't get the part because they told me i was a little bit too much like nathan lane yeah i mean and, uh, I, now that makes sense to me i can see why they would feel that way mm -hmm. yeah but, i think it's hard and yeah. for a sondheim piece and again you know at this point in his career this is one of the rare shows that you see more with his early shows that bear the stamp of other creators. In this particular case, George Abbott directing, Jerome Robbins coming in and saying, here's how you fix this show, change the opening number. And then the fact that they wrote it, as they were writing it, they had the voice of a very specific comedian in mind, Phil Silvers, who had a very specific way of talking and, a, and an established character, the whole Sergeant Bilko thing. And then he doesn't show up to do the, the production. And then you go with that original cast. What, what blew my mind is I was going back and researching this and I looked at the marquee of the Alvin Theater in 1962, Zero Mostel. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum with, who, who do you think was the with? John Carradine as Marcus Lycus, because John Carradine was the next biggest name in the show. And, you know, he had done, you know, Shakespeare and all the universal horror movies in the, in the 40s, but that was the next biggest imprint on the show. So you're going, so much of this must have been crafted in a way of serving up Jack Guilford and the way that he worked and, and Zero Mostel by the time they got to Comedy Tonight 
where they were really like in a very old fashioned way, writing for stars and having star directors and choreographers put a hand on, on a musical that of Sondheim that we would never think of by the time we get to Passion or, you know, Bounce or Roadshow, we're going, nobody would suggest anything to the master. Whereas at this point, you probably had a lot of hands in what ended up becoming Forum. I mean, it's, it's nuts to me when you think about this show. Just in terms of like that, that creative team, each of which is this like titanic comedy, brilliant mind, Sondheim, which, you know, obviously Sondheim, those factors when they're writing for specific people. And then also the fact that they've, they've actually used a lot of like ancient Roman plots. I mean, there was a joke in, in forum that is literally translated from Plautus. And I'm like, that's just, I mean, you turn about, talk about spinning, spinning plates. It's, it's wild to me that they managed to have so many factors influencing them and they're drawn from so many sources. And yet it ended up to be this, this great coherent thing. I mean, it's just, it's just cool. And the joke you're referring to, which it's, is it? You know, it's so funny because when I was working on forum, I had written this into a program note and I've spent the last week trying to find what it was because I was like, what was the joke? What was the joke? I knew there was one. And the, the joke is I am a parade. Mm -hmm. um, that oh, Gloria. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a literal crazy. translation. Stay yeah. <laughs> and the characters yeah. stay. There's a line in one of Steve's lyrics when, when uh, the braggart warrior Miles Gloriosa sings I am a parade. That's three, uh, no, 2,000 years old, that line. And it gets a laugh every night. So, and because the, they, they pulled it from three different plays of, of Plautus. And re, I mean, all of those, those sort of archetypal plots are from the Roman. The only thing that's really different is that, um, I mean, aside from the fact that it's a totally different setting, but like, I mean, time, but uh, the idea of Pseudolus wanting to be freed, a, a slave wanting to be freed was something that would appear in Plautus, but it was very casual. It was never like the main gist of it. So that was kind of their creation. But otherwise, I mean, you can just pull out the tropes of like, you know, the, the lustful old man and the, the, man, the ridiculous soldier who's going to be, who's a total blowhard and is going to be tricked, you know, the tricksy servant, all of these things were, have their DNA all the way back. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of wild when you look at it because you can just, there's such a distinct line from ancient Rome to like Commedia dell'arte to a funny thing happened on the way of the forum. It's, it's a lot less of their creation um, entirely than you would think. And Robbie, you know, to, to your point of those two productions, I think in a way that builds also on not only the, um, the creators of the show having a hand, but any production that I've either seen or been involved in, it is a show that really um, responds to the discipline or lack of discipline of the players of that production. Um, I remember the show you did at the Goodman. It had a lot of anachronistic, yeah. funny things, bicycles and people wearing gym shoes and things like that. Whereas, you know, it, certainly the, 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 the Broadway production then that you did did not involve any of that wink, wink, nudge, nudge, hey, let's, or, or as they say of Zero Mostel getting out there and, you know, yelling out the, the you know, the, the boxing 
uh, scores or the baseball, you know, the baseball scores or whatever like that. Um, what, have you, what have you found as an actor in this piece? Do you like to be disciplined or do you like to misbehave? Um, well, actually I like both. Um, but, I, you know, it's very interesting because um, in that first production, I think I went too far. Um, and I always felt that, but the audience loved it. So I didn't discipline myself. In the second production, um, Jerry Zachs hated that stuff. He was a control freak and probably still is. And um, I mean, he would say, okay, if you turn your head to the right on that line and blink twice, he could be that exacting. At that time in my life, rather than being sort of, how dare you interfere with my process, I was, I loved that challenge. I thought if I can, if I can do what he's asking me and keep it believable, um, I'm the greatest actor that ever lived, you know? <laughs> and um, so I just enjoyed meeting that challenge. But then um, both Nathan and Whoopi would, and this is an interesting, uh, this is interesting to me. Nathan at one point, um, I think it was my first week on, um, didn't like the audience. Uh, they weren't laughing enough. There was a guy in the front row reading his program. And at one point he walked over to the guy reading the program and he pulled it out of his hand and he said, what's so fascinating? You paid all this money, I'm up here trying to get laughs. What's so interesting about this program? And the audience really thought it was funny, but he was genuinely mad. So he turns to the audience and he says, good night, everybody. And he walks off stage and leaves me alone on stage, on Broadway, <laughs> nothing to do. I knew instinctively, well, I knew two things. I knew that Jerry Zachs was in the back of the house and I knew that if I did anything that Nathan Lane would have a problem with me. So I just stood there. I didn't make a bit. I didn't tap dance. I didn't, I didn't grin cheapest. I just stood there and waited. And then finally he came back out and he said, where were we? And I even knew not to, not to like ad lib. I just made a gesture <laughs> that would bring us back. And, um, and then we got started again and then he stopped again. He put his arm around me. He walked me downstage and he said, folks, I shouldn't be doing this to him. This is his first week in the show. Isn't he doing great, ladies and gentlemen? And then he pulled me back upstage and we started again. And I understood in that moment that there's such a thing as a star. Cause you know, I came from the Chicago tradition where we didn't really do that but he was the star and only he could do that. The rest of the show had to be as tight as a drum. Just 
There was a moment where, uh, you know, when we think Pseudolus is dead and then he comes back to life and, or whatever, he's gonna drink the poison or whatever. And Jerry Zachs told me to cry. So I started blubbering and then Nathan Lane did a take to me and that was funny. Then the next night, Jerry Zachs said, okay, cry, but try to talk through your tears. Just don't make any sense. Just try to talk through your tears. So I did like, a uh, full 15 seconds <laughs> and the audience liked it and and okay then the next night Jerry Zach said to me um okay try and talk to you through your tears but you can't be looking one direction this part of the audience isn't getting you so find a reason to turn to this half and then do it and do it longer <laughs> um I knew not to bring anything of my own to this. That he was doing this in a way that was disciplined. It wasn't, oh, just go out there and try to do something funny, but it was disciplined. Um, the only person that could crack up on stage with him was um, Ernie Sabella that they had done Hakuna Matata, you know, mm -hmm. the Lion King together. Um, there was a, but, I noticed because I was watching the show every night before I went in, they did the same improv every time they did it. It was almost as scripted as the actual script. Um, Whoopi and I cracked up on stage a couple of times, but then it wasn't like we said, let's do that again. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just like this interesting thing. There's this line, you, you, you have to sort of decide where it is. Um, and everybody has to be on that page, but it has to come from beginning with a large amount of discipline. Whereas Frank Galati, when I did it, the Goodman gave me free reign, which we love as actors. But if I had it to do over, I think I would have been, I would have started from a different place. Yeah, it's 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 about the you know the performers in this show. Linda, where do you find? Have you found that when uh, that it challenges you greatly when you're working with different casts on a show like this? That's so much about comedians as opposed to comic act, funny actors. I mean. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, but I think it's much more disciplined when you're working with comedians than with comic actors. At least that's my experience. I mean, you know, like, you know, like Robbie was just saying, I think most of that stuff gets 100% like fleshed out and set in rehearsal. And I have so much respect for those comedic actors that can go out and deliver it correctly and get the joke every, get the laugh every single night without making those little alterations. So like from a music perspective, that's the perfect world where you have this perfect, funny ensemble cast that cements the business. And then everyone can work together and you feel like you're firing on all cylinders then. When somebody goes out and mixes it up and then you have to react to it, then you get a different kind of performance, you know? 
Now, you know, when I, I, I went to the op Whoopi's opening night party and this woman came up to me and she was about three feet tall and just ancient. And she introduced herself as Jack Guilford's wife, widow. And we got to talking and um, she said, well, she told me she thought Jack would be happy with my performance, which, you know, was a moment I'll never forget. Hmm. And then she said, but Jack was not happy with Zero. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Zero was famous for going off track, you know, for, hmm. for going off the rails. And uh, I don't think Jack was like that. So, I mean, that's an, I, I mean, and, and I don't know how that worked, but I do know that if Zero was gonna go off the rails, Jack probably felt he had no choice but to stay on, on mm -hmm. track because somebody had to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is interestingly one of those Sondheim shows that um, he continued to write material for and that in subsequent productions, material was put back in or tried, you know, in and out. Um, take us a little bit through, I think you know some about about that, uh, Annika, yes, in terms of some of the songs? Uh, yeah, some of that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not super knowledgeable about mm -hmm. all of the ones. I know that the, the one that seems to come back most often is the Echo song for mm -hmm. Philia as opposed to uh, that'll show him. And yeah. I, I was actually, I, I'm pretty sure that we did the Echo song at Two River um, instead of that'll show him. But yeah, there, there were quite a few that came in and out uh, in different moments. I think they're still putting in some, some like I think production still choose some different, some different ones, but well, I'm not sure what, what the rules are. I recall, are Robbie, in your production at the Goodman, I'm 99% sure that you guys did farewell which was a song that they wrote specifically for Nancy Walker when they when they did the 72 revival and it started in California. Oh my god, yes, and she tap danced. And she and the whole premise and it's because Nancy Walker wanted another song cuz cuz Domina only gets the one song in act 2. Right. Right. And then Nancy Walker didn't come to Broadway with them. So they wrote this whole song for her, but they ended up taking the song to Broadway in that 72 revival. And I had never heard it. And I was so delighted to hear it in, in your production. And it's so funny, but it is completely superfluous. Yeah, I mean, it's all about false exits, right? If yeah. I recall, yeah. You think yeah. she's saying her final farewell and then it's not, she has, yeah. Yeah, and um, then she comes back and then she sings another chorus of it and then she exits and they go on with the scene and then she shows up again on the opposite side of the stage or some such thing like that. It's, yeah. it's very- well, it's Also another example of how they used anachronisms because I remember she tap danced mm -hmm. in our production, she tap danced and that which made no sense at all, but the, she <laughs> and the choreographer were friends mm -hmm. and she had said to him, oh, I'd love to tap dance in this, oh, well. Anyway, you, there's a good example of, I guess I didn't go too far comparatively. <laughs> I'm funny hearing you say that though, because I feel like I feel like this is a show where it's like, I almost wish you could kind of pick and choose from among these different songs, depending on who you have. Like uh, in Two River, the Jessica Stone production that we did uh, was all men. Uh, she had done it all, with all men, as partially because that's how it would have been done in, in the Roman, but also because her feeling was these, this was designed to be sort of all cartoonish and these weren't really kind of 
real like women characters anyway. Um, and David Turner played Philia. And it was honestly, first of all, I think it's the only time I've ever seen a Philia where it like 100% worked as a, as a brilliant character. Mm-hmm. Um, and also was one of the best performances I've ever seen on stage ever. Um, because there was something about David Turner and they, he wasn't in full, he wasn't in drag. It wasn't an attempt to make him look like a beautiful woman in any way, shape or form. He just had a kind of like short blonde wig and a white dress. And he would, um, he just had a way of like standing and looking. And there was something about having him wearing this kind of persona of philia, which was so truly felt by him, but watching him do it your imagination had to go there anyway. So it was the most, it was so brilliant. You totally bought that this was the most beautiful woman in the world and just the dumbest person. Um, So for something like that, it was like the Echo Song was a great, is a great option because it's, there's something kind of like, even though it's the joke is that she doesn't know in That'll Show Him, there's something kind of knowing about that. It's a little bit winky winky um, as opposed to the Echo Song, which is just, sort of so wide-eyed and like innocent and it it was a much better fit mm-hmm. um so it's it's just interesting the the different varieties when you get the different performers and you get that alchemy right about who's who's going really big who's going really real you know the balance that you find uh it feels like it makes sense that these songs would have been adjusted and i wish you know i wonder if you can choose a little bit right and when we did it linda we did the echo song as well as opposed to that'll show him. Do you recall how we arrived at that? Um, I don't recall, but I don't feel like we ever really considered that'll show him just for what you were just describing, which is the echo song. You know, it really, it really um, sets the character versus that'll show him, which is just a little, not quite on, on point. Um, And I also, listen, it's a, it's a piece made up of solo after solo after solo that reinforce all of these amazing, uh, hilarious characters. But I think for variety's sake, it's nice to have a duet in that moment, just for me, like, it's just, you know, it, it starts to be like, oh, somebody's coming out here to do another solo. You know what I mean? It's that you have to be careful. And I feel like when you have those opportunities. Um, but I just think from a character perspective, the Echo Song is brilliant. It just, it gets the job done where that'll show him just feels kind of like, eh, it belongs in a musical comedy, but not this one. And as yeah. I recall from the research when we made these decisions, Sondheim had really kind of fallen on, I really don't have a preference. Um, I don't think that either song necessarily is the perfect song for the moment. Whereas the one song that he, seems to uh, wrestle with still a bit is um, Pretty Little Picture. That for him, that was good writing. He felt that, I mean, that the rhymes were intricate and and uh, um, show-offy in the right way, but yet it's a song that too is frequently uh, eliminated from the show. I don't remember uh, if, that, if that was done. I don't recall if they did that in, in your production with Nathan Lane, Robbie, do you recall? Uh, no, they didn't. Um, I think they rehearsed it. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it's on the album, but I don't think that it ever made it into the show. Um, it's also like, a, the, I'm sorry, the plot, it leads you nowhere, mm-hmm. that song. It's kind of like a red herring. They don't make it to the ship, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So that's the other reason why I think, yeah, why are we wasting our time with this? 
Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you were gonna say, Annika? I'm oh sorry. no, I, I just was gonna say, I, I, I agree. I think it is on the oh. album. Um, now, uh, I'm not sure how many of you have seen the, the film adaptation of this, which is somewhat frustrating um, <laughs> from what, 19, mid 60s? I saw it a long time ago. Yeah, I, feel I like just remember a big chariot race. Right. I've seen like five minutes of it and I feel like that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those, I, when, when I was uh, going back and kind of like just, you know, reminding myself of the different uh, iterations of this and adaptations and you forget that there's only been three, no, four Sondheim movies now. Only four of his shows have been filmed, this being the first one. And um, it's definitely a lesson in what can happen to something that is so specifically a stage piece and what happens when you hand it over to movie people who then begin to muck around with it. And then in the casting choices, find themselves having to build up a certain character because in that particular case, they cast Phil Silvers as Marcus Lycus. And so they needed to start building and, and, and change the story around. And then suddenly you're not doing the same show anymore. You know? um, I just, I'm sorry, I've just been thinking about this and I'd love to go back to it because it has, um, I was thinking about that role of Philia and how uh, back in the day, because I'm old and I remember, women were not, if you were an ingenue, you were not encouraged to be funny. Mm-hmm. That was not supposed to be one of your, one of the things in your arsenal, yeah. Or um, quivers and whatever you know, both as, as Nancy Pelosi would say. Um, that's changing, um, and it started changing really. I, interestingly enough, with like Kristen Chenoweth, who can be a number of things, but one of the things she can be is funny, and she was talking to me about her audition for Forum, for the production that I did, that and uh, Jessica Bovers got the role. And when I asked her, I said to her, I said, I, I love Jessica Bovers, but why didn't you get that part? And she said, because Jessica Bovers wore the right thing to the audition and I didn't. And what she was really, you know immediately what I'm about to say. Those men who were casting the show were looking for a sexy philia, not a funny one. Mm-hmm. And Jessica knew that she could take care of the humor, but she also knew that she could be sexy at that audition, and she went for that. Whereas I think Kristen went for the funny, and they didn't understand the value of that. So what I'm wondering is, is that'll show them I have yet to see, I mean, I don't know about the productions you did, but I have yet to see by a, a really expert comedian. Well, it's interesting because I think this was a debate that they had in the original production as well. Because I, I came across a, a quote that Hal Prince had about how he he had suggested Joel Gray and Barbara Harris for those two parts. Um, wow. His thinking being that those ingenues should also be comedy people, not just ingenue ingenues as we kind of know them. And and he was like he was the only one who who thought that that was a good idea. Um, although. The quote I saw, he he still thinks it was a great, you know, whenever this was written, he, he sure. persisted. So I think it's kind of an interesting debate because 
certainly Hero and, and Philia are not really, they are written to be kind of this, the straight man and woman of the, of the show. And it, it's interesting to think of them, it, it's a, it would be a slightly different show if you had a true comedian in there. It, it, it was, I wish I could like magically transport David Turner's performance into your heads because what was amazing about it is it wasn't a comedy performance, but it was hilariously funny because it was so brilliantly real in some way. But what made it so brilliantly real is that it very much was obviously not real, mm-hmm. you know, because you were not looking at a beautiful young woman and uh, it was very clearly right. not a beautiful young woman. Right. So, so that's what I mean about like kind of having to, having to go there with your imagination actually made it work better. You suddenly saw the part clearer as opposed to, you know, I think there's, there's an ookiness to Philia now because you're asking a, a beautiful young woman to play the most beautiful young woman who has not a thought in her head. And that's, that's necessarily, you're just kind of, I mean, I don't want to say objectifying because that, that's kind of the purpose of Philia is that she sort of is a beautiful object in the way that that part has always been sort of a beautiful object. But um, it's, it's a really interesting one to try to balance. And, and I wonder, I mean, it would be fascinating to see someone like Kristen Chenoweth do it because I wonder what she could find in there. Um, you know, I wonder what someone, like I'm not saying David Turner is the only person in the world who could, who could make Philia work, but there was a very good reason why he could make it work. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting thing, like, and it's funny, it's, it's specifically in Philia, like a hero, it feels fine to just have hero be kind of a dumb young, you know, wholesome man um, with very short pants, always very short pants. Um, yeah for yeah. hero <laughs> actually i i worked with jim stanick who was so lovely and he had a story about how his his first shorts when he was doing that nathan lane revival were just like obscene he had like hot pants and jerry jerry Zachs, i think was like can we get some pants on that man like well, um, what he ended up with was pretty short i mean it was had, still pretty short he has great legs he There's does legs. yeah yeah it yeah. did make me think i was like if that's where they ended up where did they begin it has been a long, um, th- that was that for a long time has been a problem with this particular show. You know, it was a different hero in Philia very early on. The original Philia was Karen Black mm-hmm. from Trilogy of Terror and all of those, you know, movies later. So it was a very different take. And then Hal Prince was pitching, you know, his idea. But even if you think of that and go, Joel Gray at that time, you know, little and diminutive was not again where they, they were still in that sort of old Broadway mindset that the ingenues needed to be this handsome, you know, traditionally handsome guy and traditionally handsome, you know, not threatening in a funny way, kind of a bland girl next door kind of a thing. But Linda, if you recall uh, the last time we did the show, we had uh, our philia, was a very talented comedian from and, and did work in improv and Second City and things like that. And she was miserable in this show because yeah. she did not, I wouldn't give her the license to be funny because it would just, it was just putting a hat on a hat. You know, there, it, it was very Abbott and Costello. You need to be the straight person. You need to be that that one particular role and play it because you've got to set up hysterium and pseudolus and erroneous and everybody who encounters you. And we don't have bandwidth for you to start 
also, you know, it's why Zeppo wasn't funny. We didn't have room for another funny person in here. Yeah, and the, the thing is, is it that's that's the trick to forum overall is it requires a discipline that that is not always acceptable to the person trying to execute the work. You know what I mean? It's it's a really disciplined sort of approach to doing music theater. Like you said, you can't put a hat on a hat and that's that's a trap that many people fall into with forum. It's like you can't allow it to get away from you and when it does that's when you lose the funny and that's when you lose the beauty in the in the show. So I like to, uh, if, we, if we wanted to wrap this up, uh, I like to kind of pose this question. If somebody told you that they were about to, they're gonna go out tonight and see for the first time ever a production of this show called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, what will you tell them that they should expect is gonna be the experience that they'll have with that show? You're gonna see what? Uh, you're going to laugh. You're just going to laugh. Um, uh, you're going to laugh at things you you probably shouldn't be laughing at nowadays. It's got prostitutes. <laughs> it's got prostitutes and slaves, and um, uh, you know references to rape. And uh, you probably shouldn't be laughing at this, but you're going to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I would say, yeah, you're going to have a great time. And then I, I would say, come back after and we'll talk about gender roles and <laughs> archetypes and uh, how this fits into a larger theme of comedy and it's, you know, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, I think if, I think if, uh, I think you have to keep an open mind and just be prepared to have a great time and expect the unexpected because it's not traditional in any way. It's the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The classic. It is. Plagueers, I bid you welcome. The theater is a temple and we are here to worship the gods of comedy and tragedy. Tonight, we are pleased to announce a comedy. Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Nothing with kings, nothing with crowns, bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. All situations, no complications, nothing portentous or polite. Pantaloons and tunics, artisans and eunuchs, funerals and chases, burglars and paces, panderers, philanderers, cupidity, timidity, mistakes, fakes, rhymes, mind, bumblers, 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 no royal pace, no coaching point, and a happy ending. Madness, man in his madness, this time it all turns out all right. Oh,
you all so much for joining me. I loved talking with you. Uh, I'd love to get your insights and learn so much from you about this show that I have such an affection for, but I'm so glad that it's shared with all of you as well. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.